We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. And restore control. And now there's a new form of cyber matchmaking, college networking websites. Is this perhaps the next big thing? Same-sex couple soon be able to head to the altar. The British people have voted to leave the European Union. A major leap for mankind, said French President François Hollande. For President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. We expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of 21st Century Christian, where we endeavor to apply the truth of God's Word to the challenges that we face here and now in this, our ever-changing 21st century. To, today, I wanted to discuss something that is rather close to my heart, and I, I don't mean that in, in a positive way. But this issue isn't something that I have figured out exactly how to deal with or how I should go about it exactly because there are many people who are 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 influenced by this thing that we're discussing here tonight and and we want to be gracious and we want to be loving and we want to be patient with people as the Lord has been gracious and loving and patient with us. But at the same time, we are called to speak the truth and to contend for that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so, all I can do is do my best. And so what we're doing today, what we're talking about today, is the prosperity gospel. Now, you've probably heard that term. Maybe you haven't. But I'm assuming that many of you have. And so the question that we need to address first and foremost is simply, what is the prosperity gospel? What is the prosperity gospel? Well, the first thing I want to do before I answer that question specifically is I want to go to Galatians 1. Galatians chapter 1. Listen to what he says here in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, listen to this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. As, I, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He goes on to say, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, any other gospel other than the gospel which he delivered, the gospel of Jesus Christ, any other gospel, he says, anyone who preaches this 
false gospel, let him be accursed. In fact, although it may be called a gospel, there is no such thing. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, and then not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the true gospel. The prosperity gospel is not a true gospel. It's not a form of the gospel. It's not a different perspective of the gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a no gospel. Now, it's, it's coded in biblical language, language that Christians are familiar with, but it is untrue nonetheless, and it needs to be dealt with, I think. Um, some might find my tone unnecessarily harsh, but I don't think there's another way to really go about that. I think we can speak the truth in love, and I think that we can um, speak, or we should speak severely about issues that are, are serious and that involve people's eternal well-being. Um, maybe other people go about this a little bit differently than I do, and I don't want to come across as self-righteous. In fact, when I came to faith initially, I didn't know what f up from down. And I was actually sitting in a coffee shop and I was unsure of what to do and, and where to go in terms of church. I was basically just reading books and reading the Bible. And I overheard a man um, nearby in an adjacent seat and he was evangelizing or he was talking about Jesus to this couple in any case, I I took this as a sign, and I went and I introduced myself to him, and, and he introduced himself to me, and he turns out he was a member of this church, and so that following Sunday, him and his wife picked me up and took me to this church, and and you know what, I, I, still, I still believe that that was a divine appointment, I still believe God is sovereign, um, I still consider that man a friend, I consider that family um, to be friends of mine um, for the most part. The brother is was the pastor of this church, although I never met him specifically. Um, but those of the family that I did meet were very gracious and, and hospitable and loving towards me. But that church was a mega church in Winnipeg, Manitoba, a mega church called Springs Church, and they taught the prosperity gospel there, which was, to me, it was a, a you know appealing to me at first, and and I. You know, I, I accepted it. A lot of the language they were saying, it, it sounded good. And and that's the thing. It sounds good, right? But I just, I guess, I, I think a couple of things happened. I started reading the scriptures. First and foremost, um, I've always been interested. Well, I was, the moment I got saved, from the moment I got saved, I was interested in just in learning and, and, and deciphering um, the truth, I guess. And, and I was reading lots of theology and stuff like that, and so it began to dawn on me that this, what I was hearing, was not, didn't line up with a biblical testimony, and of course that's not my doing, because I'm so wise, it's the, the Holy Spirit, right? Um, he, he illuminates the scriptures for us, and 
he he leads us to the truth and i think that if you are committed you know to the scriptures um to to christ um that that he will he will make known the the weaknesses and the errors of this prosperity gospel so all that to say what is the prosperity gospel well if i had to encapsulate it i would maybe say that the prosperity gospel Overall, it teaches that the Christian, that you as a Christian are meant, or let's say you deserve to have victory after victory in this life, that suffering is a matter of you not having enough faith or your negative thinking. You know, according to the prosperity gospel, people should expect God to bless them. God God needs to be held accountable um, to his promises and those promises include material blessing and financial reward and the desires of your heart. And all this is contingent upon your faith and upon your words, your words having the ability to, to uh, create, to manifest, you know, just as God, you know, creates through speaking, you too can, can create if you are constantly engaging in these repetitive positive affirmations. And, 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 you know, other words, our other titles are like the, the, the name it and claim it theology. That falls under this umbrella also. You know, if you want something, you've got to claim it in and, and Jesus' name kind of thing, right? So this is, that's what the prosperity gospel is broadly speaking. And there's many proponents of it, popular teachers, televangelists, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn, actually, his, is it his son or his nephew, Costian, is actually a leading advocate now against the prosperity gospel and if you check out that movie american gospel which is a which the i think the first hour or at least an hour of it is actually free available on youtube american gospel you can watch it i think he's on there and there's other um figures on there who basically take a stance against the prosperity gospel and expose it for what it is. And there's lots of testimonies from Christians who have been misled by the prosperity gospel. And here's the thing, I could have gone down that path. I could have got sucked into that. But I guess I just knew too from experience, like, because I come out of this life of drugs and and alcohol, and I think I realized that, you know, God used that suffering, um, and it was it was a part of of what shaped me into the person that I am, and it was ultimately through that suffering that I was brought to this point of desperation, where I in turn to the cross as my only hope. And so I knew that the suffering was in fact um, purposeful; it was meaningful, and it wasn't this uh, thing that is only to be experienced by the unfaithful. You know, another another uh, characteristic of the prosperity gospel is this sort of reap what you sow theology in terms of if you give money, you should expect money in return. Or if you, a lot of these, what do these preachers do is they get on, on, on TV and they basically, um, they say things like, well, if you give your greatest gift of faith now, you'll receive 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more in return. And so you have these people, vulnerable people, isolated, lonely people watching their TVs and they get sucked into this and they write a check and their life savings go towards this charlatan or this fraud on TV. And you can obviously imagine how dangerous that is or damaging that is. So I was reading this book 
recently, health, wealth, and happiness, how the prosperity gospel overshadows the gospel of Christ. And I just got to make sure I get this right here. Yes, by David Jones and Russell Wood Woodbridge. It's available. I bought the Kindle edition for like $9.99 or something. Anyways, there's some interesting things in here that really I thought were helpful. And it gives you some basically seven reasons why the prosperity gospel continues to grow. Why is it so popular? How is How have so many Christians been duped? I mean, we're supposed to be the Protestants who are like the Bereans who search their scriptures to make sure what the apostles are saying is true, but that's not the case, is it? No, people are not reading the scriptures. Um, but first and foremost, they say the prosperity gospel contains a grain of biblical truth, although it is greatly distorted. So reason number one why it's so popular, it does contain that grain of biblical truth. As do most, most heretical teachings, they have that sort of veneer of, of biblical truth. Second, the prosperity gospel appeals to the natural human desire to be successful. I mean, people desire wealth and and uh, material gain, right? That's part of what it means to be a fallen human being. Uh, thirdly, the prosperity gospel promises much and requires little. So Jesus basically is someone who can help you help yourself. That's it. Um, God is this cosmic bellhop or vending machine who exists to serve you. In fact, a lot of these, as we'll get into a little bit here, like a lot of these preachers speak as though God is just sort of sitting around waiting for you to uh, tap into the power that you rightly deserve because you're so amazing. Fourth, many advocates of the prosperity gospel have cultivated a winsome personality. This is huge. Winsome personality and, and polished uh, and a polished presentation of their message. Think about you know, Joel Osteen, the smiling preacher. I mean, he just looks like this friendly, inviting guy, right? Fifth, many followers of the prosperity gospel have little knowledge of biblical doctrine. So that's what we were talking about. People aren't reading the scriptures. And so they're perfectly going to, uh, or they're perfect, the perfect audience for this sort of thing. And sixth, many people have experienced success and healing, or at least claim to have done so, and attribute it to the teaching of the prosperity gospel. And thus they validate the prosperity gospel through their experience, right? And I've seen a lot of this. I've heard a lot of this from people, a lot of it. They appeal to their experience, say, well, this happened to me. It can't be wrong. But as these authors of this book point out, modern Christians tend to be pragmatic in nature and incorrectly conclude that if a method works, it must be legitimate. So if you have received something, let's say you gave some money to the church and you did end up uh, buying that or being able to afford that new house, therefore it's... The prosperity gospel is valid. And then their final seventh view is many in the church lack a general sense of discernment because they are more influenced by the secular culture than by scripture. And ultimately, this is what we were talking about before, that you need to, to know your scriptures. You need to have a biblical worldview um, that informs your, your, your picture of all sorts of things, including uh, material wealth and material possessions. Ultimately, if you, if you don't have a good theology which is informed by the scriptures, then, I mean, you're going to be more easily swayed to to believing these things. But where does this, another question we might ask is, where does this all come from? And I don't think this is what gets discussed as, th that much, because we, we talk about the fact that this exists. We know it exists. There's prosperity churches everywhere. But where does it actually come from? One thing I like about this book, that I'm reading Health, Wealth, 
and happiness, how the prosperity gospel overshadows the gospel of Christ is sort of very briefly but succinctly traces the, the prosperity movement. But they point out the fact that this actually goes back to the the 1800s to this movement called the New Thought Movement. The New Thought Movement. Now, the New Thought Movement is sort of just a mashup of, of pagan philosophies in many ways. There's lots of it which has some tones of Gnosticism in it. If you don't know what Gnosticism is, basically just a broad term referring to an early um, heretical group within the church. Um, there were various forms of Gnostics, but one of the things that the Gnostics believed was that the physical world was evil, but that the spiritual world or the world of the mind was good. And so they would say things like, well, Christ couldn't have actually been God. God wouldn't actually become a man. Or that when Christ was resurrected, it wasn't into an actual physical body because the physical world is evil, it's bad, it's corrupt, it's sinful, everything like that, right? So that was something which which they taught. And also that the physical world, a lot of these New Thought people, um, from what I understand, seem to be teaching that the physical world is is more or less an illusion, and it, it can be manipulated by your mind and and by your words, which would explain why you're able to, you know, speak things into existence. So if you just repeat yourself, you know, I will get rich. I will get rich. I'll get that job. I'll get that job. I'll get that job. I'll get that job. Whatever it is, you know. Um, then that you can make it happen. So basically, the idea is that you have to believe something. If you believe it before it happens, then it will happen. So you're basically your beliefs create reality. And of course, you know, sickness, malady is, you know, an abhorrent reality within this, this view and shouldn't be accepted. So for example, you have this guy, Emanuel Swedenborg, who is apparently the grandfather of New Thought. He, he wrote that Sickness is simply a malady which, because of sin or error or a failure of understanding, attacks the temporary or unreal man. The spiritual man can have no cognizance of disease. People are spirits or minds trapped in physical bodies. Since reality is the mind, nothing can invade or attack people unless there's something wrong with their thinking. Unless something is wrong with their thinking. Interesting. And how does this all how does this all fit? And so that's sort of the philosophy which informing the prosperity movement. But how does that actually fit with the theology of scripture? Like how do these preachers teach? What do they teach? Well, listen to what Kenneth Copeland, who is clearly bought into this new thought philosophy, hook, line, and sinker, or whether or not I don't know if these guys believe this stuff. But they, what they do believe is that it makes them a lot of money and that people are willing to pay them. That's what they believe. But listen to what he says. He says, faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It is this force of faith which makes the laws of the spirit world function. There are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. 
Later in the same book, he claims, if you make up your mind that you are willing to live in divine prosperity and abundance, divine prosperity will come to pass in your life. You have exercised your faith. Think about that. Divine prosperity will come to pass in your life if you make up your mind. Quite the claim that he's making there. Quite the claim. Dangerous, no less. Dangerous, no less. One of the proponents of the new thought philosophy which influenced men like Kenneth Copeland and and others was a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale. Now, he was actually believe it or not, a minister of a Reformed church. I'm not sure exactly which uh, federation or denomination he was was a part of, but he was famous for writing numerous books. The most famous book was, I think, The Power of Positive Thinking. The Power of Positive Thinking, published in 1952, um, has sold five million copies, um, was hugely um, influential, and it was coded, let's say, had a veneer of, of biblical language, but it was just flatly unbiblical. And there were many, many Christians who, upon its release, um, took a stance against it and basically said that what this guy is promoting is not uh, the message of the scriptures. But he had a huge influence and um, actually, turns out that in 84, Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor um, that one can re- receive. I think he was friends with, with Nixon. And I have to look more into this. I think he has had an influence also on uh, Donald Trump, um, as well as other um, prominent figures in the United States. And elsewhere, but basically, this is sort of what um, he says. Uh, that this is a quote I'm reading here. He talks about this mental activity called imaging, and so basically, it consists of vividly picturing in your conscious mind a desired goal or objective, and holding that image until it sinks into your unconscious mind, where it releases great untapped energies. It works best when it is combined with a strong religious faith backed by prayer and the seemingly illogical technique of giving thanks for benefits before they are received. When the imaging concept is applied steadily and systematically, it solves problems, strengthens personalities, improves health, and greatly enhances the chance for success in any kind of endeavor. This is a Christian minister. Listen to what he says about God. Who is God? Some theological being? He is so much greater than theology. God is vitality. God is life. God is energy. As you breathe God in, as you visualize his energy, you will be re-energized. That's what he said. Listen to what he says elsewhere. It is, it's not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God, I have mine. I have found eternal peace 
in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. Christ is one of the ways. God is everywhere. So he's a pluralist ultimately, right? So you can see how this message would be appealing to so many different people. So God is basically loses his personality. Jesus Christ does not become the only way, the truth, the life. He is not the only means of eternal life. When Jesus says that none can come to the Father but through me, he's lying. Instead, we're supposed to listen to ministers like Peel, who appeal, no pun intended, to our base instincts in our desires for material wealth and possessions. Of course, this teaching is what has influenced um, so many modern-day voices. We mentioned Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Oprah Winfrey um, is a big proponent of this positive thinking, uh, positive imaging, visualization, visualization um, technique, or whatever you want to call it. Basically, this idea is that, you know, nothing is impossible. Just got to believe in yourself, which is actually the title of one of the first chapter of uh, one of Peel's books is Believe in Yourself. And I think that says it all right there. You know, don't believe in God ultimately. It's about believing in yourself and what you can accomplish. And that God exists to basically see to it that your endeavors are successful. Your endeavors are are successful. And so we can see how this philosophy is problematic, especially when it is coded in the language of of the scriptures. Um, and basically what it does is it, it, it makes faith out to be this sort of magic formula, um, a way of tapping into to these, these universal spiritual laws. Um, that's what the Prosperity teacher Kenneth Hagen tells his followers, you know, have faith in your faith or faith in my faith because my faith is this power that that is like a key to healing and blessing. You can see two things from this. One, how corrupt and unbiblical this is, but also how appealing it might be to many people. Another famous prosperity teacher he says when we pray believing that we have already received what we are praying god has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass it is a key to getting results as a christian we must not allow religion or tradition to blind us to the truth of what prayer really is what is prayer in this scheme it's god giving you what you want It's, uh, it's troubling. Here's, here's what he, he says elsewhere. How can someone pray for healing when they do not know God wants them to be healed? How can we believe God for an increase in our finances if we do not know God wants us to prosper? The truth is we cannot. The truth is we cannot. So what James says in James chapter 4. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that 
Your passions are at war with inside you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And listen to what he says in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. To spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. And yet these prosperity teachers who are worth millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. I've heard Kenneth Copeland, I've heard estimates that he's worth upwards of $700 million. What is going on? What is going on? So James says in the next chapter, James 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Will eat your flesh like fire. Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven. In fact, what he tells the rich young ruler... It's to sell everything he has and give to the poor. Money. Money. And the love of money are a serious hindrance. Money in and of itself is, is neutral. There are people who, who have money. Some people don't have money. There's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy at all. But... It can be a major stumbling block. And the love of money, Paul says, is at the root of all sorts of evil. He says it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves, or as some some translations say, stab themselves with many pains. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And yet he says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be financially... um, well off let's say or financially stable but when we see god as a means to our financial indulgence and our material gain and for the storing up of treasures in this earth which is exactly the opposite of what we are called to do then we are engaging in some very serious sinful behavior that is rooted in greed and the desires of the flesh and not those of the spirit we shouldn't downplay jesus's words when he says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom we have to heed those words money can be a serious serious impediment and hindrance um, to our to our sanctification And to our salvation, if we turn from God, if we turn from the true faith, if we turn, if we reject the true gospel of of Scripture, which says that all human beings, each and every one of us, is sinful and in need 
of Christ's blood in order to purify us and cleanse us of our sins. And that we all of us, if we are to have a hope, and if we are to have assurance of eternal life, we must repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And He alone, He alone can save us, and He alone is sufficient. He is sufficient. He's our only hope in life and in death. He is all that we need. Not money, not stuff. And you know what? Just because you're a Christian, just because you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, does not mean you're not going to suffer or experience pain, which is another thing that the prosperity gospel proponents are always driving home, this idea that that suffering is, is something that only the weak of faith will experience, and it's just not biblically correct. Listen to uh, this book that I was referring to earlier. It gives some of the terms that are used to describe the Christian life. Listen to this. In Luke 9.23, the reference is to taking up one's cross. In Galatians, referred to as being crucified with Christ. In 1 Corinthians, we are becoming a slave, dying to self, being last in order to be first, becoming weak in order to be strong, being poor in order to receive eternal riches, losing one's life in order to save it, decreasing that the Lord might increase. These are not, the, this is not the language um, of the prosperity teachers. This is not the language of the prosperity teachers at all. You know, and, and one, one, if I were to think of one um, particular book of the New Testament in order to, to sort of undermine this whole teaching, I mean, I think altogether Scripture just blows this teaching out of the water. And if we especially look at, to Christ as our example of suffering, you know, some people will say that, well, you know, because Christ suffered, well, I shouldn't have to suffer. No, Christ suffered on behalf of your sins and he took upon himself the cup of God's wrath. It does not mean that you aren't going to suffer. In fact, he says you will be persecuted for my name's sake. And, and Paul says, how can we partake of his glory if we don't also partake of his suffering? Those things go hand in hand. They will hate you, Jesus says. They will hate you for my name's sake. They will throw you out of, of the synagogues. Remember the warnings that he gives the apostles, what they're going to do to him? They will draw you before, before councils and before kings. They will persecute you. But one, one book in particular comes to mind, that Second Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. There's so much here. Just right off the hop, he just drives right into it. See, there's this 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 idea going around in the church there that um that suffering is a bad thing, and if Paul was truly an apostle, then he wouldn't be suffering as much as he he is. And so these men, Paul refers to them as super apostles in an ironic tone, because they think they're all that. But he boasts in his weakness. He boasts in his suffering. And listen to what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of and all comfort, those who, have who had comforts abortions, us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with and the comfort of Christ's with grace which and we mercy ourselves are comforted by God. Only for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen to that. For as we share in Christ's sufferings, 
we also share abundantly comfort too. Those things go hand in hand. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And this is what he says going on in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Talk about suffering. Are you saying Paul didn't have faith? I think that's what some of the prosperity teachers would say. Paul didn't have faith. Obviously, that's not true. He's an apostle, divinely appointed apostle. He met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, was commissioned by him, um, wrote much of the New Testament. <laughs> um, listen to what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations so Paul had these revelations that he received from God. And he says, so to keep, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know exactly what this thorn was, but he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Does that sound like the language of the prosperity gospel? Not at all. In fact, it sounds like the very opposite. What about Jesus himself, who scripture calls the man of sorrows? He was born in a manger, not in the Ritz. He's part of a lower to maybe middle class working family. His father was a, a, a carpenter. At his birth, remember that Joseph and Mary were, were poor enough that they offered two pigeons rather than the usual lamb, right? And we know that when Jesus, during his ministry, who, who, did, he, who did he associate with? He ministered to everybody, but who was it that who who received his message mostly the majority of them they were outcasts orphans widows prostitutes people who weren't rich materially speaking because you see the people that that had money and and material wealth See, they were confident in themselves. They were confident in their status. They were confident in the stuff that they had, in their possessions. And this actually was a hindrance to them coming to Christ. It was a hindrance to the rich young ruler, which is why Jesus told him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. And you see, we need to be aware. Just We need to open our eyes to the scriptures and understand by the power of the Spirit what God is saying to us here. And we need to, to counter the message of the prosperity gospel. And we need to help others who are caught up in that see um, the bankruptcy. A bankruptcy of all this of this stuff that, that, that is being fed to people. It's, it's sad. This book actually gives um, some questions that, that we can ask, that we can, that we can keep in mind that sort of differentiate 
foundational questions that differentiate the, the prosperity gospel from the truth of the real gospel from the truth of, of Scripture, and these are questions that you, you should ask yourself. Uh, but we're also going to—I'll provide you with some questions that you can ask others specifically who are dealing with the prosperity gospel or who are, or who are trapped in that. So they say five questions they give in this book that address some of the ideas within the PG, the prosperity gospel. Um, so questions they give to ask. One, why does God exist and what does he control in the world? Why does God exist and what does he control in the world? And how does that, how does that line up with what you're hearing from, from the prosperity teachers? Who's in control in their, in their scheme? Who is the sovereign Lord? To whom does the earth and the heavens belong, even the highest heavens? In whose hand is the king's heart like water which turns wherever he pleases? Who establishes a man's steps? Who controls the outcome of the dice? Is it man or God? Second question worth asking, what is the purpose of suffering? Is it solely meaningless? Is it solely the result of a specific sin or because I lack faith? Or does Scripture say something else about that? Does Scripture say something else? Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 4.1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Interesting. Third question worth asking. Others and ourselves, what do I deserve in this life? Do I deserve prosperity? Well, actually we deserve nothing. What we deserve is condemnation and wrath and punishment eternally in hell. But it's God in his mercy and his grace. Every, every breath we take is a gift from him. Another question to ask is, why did God save me? Because he needed us? <laughs> did God save us so that we could become materially rich? So that you could fulfill all your ambitions and achieve all your dreams? No. He saved us for his glory, that we might pro proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into the light, into his marvelous light. And another question worth asking is, why do I give to God? Why do I tithe? Why do I give a percentage of my income to the church? Is it because I, I'm doing so out of, a, out of a cheerful heart? Paul says God loves a cheerful giver, a willing giver. Or am I doing it because I expect God to give me something in return? Am I doing it for the right reasons? Am I doing it for the right reasons? And so we need to pray that, that God will open people's eyes to the truth. And we need to enunciate and, 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 and clearly point people to the scriptures. And say, look, that's not what Kenneth Copeland's saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here are three questions, or sorry, some questions they say that are uh, that they've put together that are aimed at producing dialogue about the prosperity gospel. That you can ask them, as a Bible-believing Christian, you can ask somebody who's caught up in this. First, you can ask them, what attracts you to the prosperity gospel? One. To what do you expect 
from God? Like, what, what does God exist for? For you? If you lost all your money, health, or friendships, would Jesus be enough? Another question to ask is, how does this particular preacher help you? How would you define success? Another question, do you have any doubts about the prosperity gospel? I think that's interesting. Do you have any doubts about the prosperity gospel? Of course, we have to trust that the Lord will guide us in these conversations, and it is by His Spirit that people's eyes are open to the truth. I could go on about this, guys, but uh, I think I've said enough here. I've already been talking for close to 45 minutes. Um, and there's so much out there. I'd recommend this book. There's other books out there also, but this book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness, um, the subtitle is the, How the Prosperity Gospel Overshadows the Gospel of Christ. That's a good one to look at. Very short, succinct book. But it's been a pleasure, guys. Um, I, I pray that, that, that you are... Um, that you are enjoying, you know, what God has to offer, which is himself, because he is enough. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, you know that's, our, that's our purpose in this life. It's not to, to get rich. And if you are suffering, I, I pray that God will, would grant you healing but that also you would grow in your faith and your sanctification, that you would draw nearer to him in your suffering so that with that same experience you can comfort others in their trials also. God bless.